This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. Ten years ago, the most forward-thinking companies were just starting to dive into the potential of data and analytics. Since then, brands have moved from using analytics to answer what customers are doing to exploring the how, why, and what they're doing in the future. Along for the ride has been the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. We have three Wharton marketing professors here to talk to us a little bit about that evolution. First, we've got Wharton marketing professor Peter Fader, who is one of the founding directors. Pete, thanks for being here. Always good to talk to you, Rachel. We've got Eric Bradlow, who is the other founding director and is also a current co-director. Eric, thanks for being here. Very always excited to talk about WCAI. And we've got Raghu Ayengar, who is a current co-director. Raghu, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. So, Pete, we'll start with you. When Wakai launched 10 years ago, can you describe a little bit the environment that it was launching into and what were some of your key goals? Sure. I think it's important to give the backdrop because even though the initiative started 10 years ago, the idea started about a decade before that. Uh, that had been doing a lot of uh, work in the, uh, in, uh, primarily in the music industry, uh, serving as an expert witness for Napster and just seeing the dysfunction that was and to a large extent still is the music industry. And I vowed as the, uh, the new century came around uh, to say we're going to bring some rigor and accountability and just, just Wharton smarts and goodness uh, to not just music but movies and television and publishing and, and, and just media entertainment in general. And it was a frustrating a few years as we pounded on the doors of all the different uh, M&E firms trying to get them to participate until it was 10 years ago when our, our founding donor, Art Bilger, said basically, if you keep the M but drop the E, I'll give you a whole bunch of money. Uh, so we basically said, let's, let's drop a primary focus on entertainment, make it more about media. And that's when Eric and I started the Wharton Interactive Media Initiative, WIMI. Uh, And that's what really got things going. And maybe Eric can pick up the story from there. Sure. Eric? Yeah. The only thing I would add to what Pete said was um, actually it turned out two to three years later that became actually a limiting name as well. Because while it was the right decision for Pete and I at the time, because again, interactive media, digital advertising was the most advanced area of analytics. Um, As we started growing to other industries, pharmaceuticals, telecom, et cetera, they're like, well, we're not in the interactive media business. And so it's actually Pete and I did it on a date that we would always remember on one eleven eleven. Oh, there you go. Is the date that the Wharton Interactive Media Initiative no longer existed and it became what we know now as the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative. And it was the right change because today we work with companies from all industry verticals, from healthcare, telecom, nonprofits, consumer packaged goods, et cetera, because everyone has the need for analytics and the use of data in that way. Right. Everybody has a lot of data, increasingly a lot of data that they're dealing with. Now, Raghu, can you talk a little bit about how do you guys see companies' views of this data and analytics technology evolving? So I think there has been a change in the sense that when Eric and Pete started this company, uh, this uh, organization 10 years ago, there were many companies out there who were kind of looking outside to see what is, you know, what are other academics doing, what are other best practices. What has also happened is there's a lot of stuff happening inside different companies. So in some sense, what you see now is that there are many companies who have their own analysts. They're thinking about, you know, what are the problems they want to solve. At the same time, there is a limited bandwidth. Their analysts can't work on everything. So that's where I believe that our organization comes in and still act as matchmakers to talk about you know, how those companies can, in, in some sense, leverage all the different academics, other students that we can match make them with. 
And Eric, you had something to add? Yeah, I would add two things to what Raghu said. One is um, the way Pete and I have always described WCI from the beginning is we're the PhD bench strength most companies wish they had. And the good news is a lot of companies still want that. But building on Raghu's point, the set of companies that have kind of very little analytics capabilities is shrinking. And it's a good thing. It's shrinking fast, which is one of the reasons why. And my second point is we've kind of broadened the mission of WCI from when Pete and I started WCI. It was really about research and research was the centerpiece and research is still the centerpiece. We're a research center. However, now that companies have gotten much more sophisticated in their use of analytics, we've started broadening what we do at WCI to go on to, of course, students, alumni, executives, etc. Now, Eric, I mean, because like you say, I mean, the barriers to having analytics technology, the barriers to being able to analyze this are lowering and it's becoming cheaper to be able to have this technology. What are some of the sort of non-tech soft skills that become really important to do this right? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually, um, in a recent article in Poets and Quants, I actually talked just about that that issue, which is, um, uh, matter of fact, Pete and I had this discussion a long time ago. I'm glad that our dean's office has agreed and has kept it this way today. Um, we're a business school. Now, what does that mean? It means that if what we were going to do, let's imagine we only cared about training people in analytics. Well, you might say, well, why doesn't Wharton have a master's in analytics program? I think, and Pete thinks, and Raghu thinks, it would be a big mistake for the Wharton school to go down that path. What every company wants is someone that knows business, has the softer skills, but also knows analytics. If you want to think of it, we always talk about this Venn diagram. On the one side, you have people with business knowledge. Well, there's a lot of graduating MBAs. Not as great as Wharton's MBAs, but there's a lot of graduating MBAs. There's a lot of people that know analytics, but people that sit at that intersection. That circle, that intersection really has not grown as fast as I thought it would. And that's where Wharton's leadership position is. It's people that know business and analytics. And Raghu, you had something to add? No, absolutely. Just building on Eric's point, I think this idea of what we call as translators, people who are you know, well-versed in the analytics part of it, that's great. But they also know how to manage teams they know how to manage people who are also doing the analytics. Because one of the things that we've done with WCAI is run a very successful executive education program where we talk about three things, tools, talent, and metrics. And this idea of talent, how do you hire the right set of people? There is a difference between, let's say, a data analyst, a data engineer, and a data scientist, and a person who can, in some sense, talk to all of them. And I would think it's really important to have someone who can translate all of what is going Absolutely. on to them. Now, Pete, what would you say are, like, how are the questions that companies are trying to answer with data changing? I would think that they've probably gotten both more complicated and less complicated in a way. Oh, they've, they've gotten uh, uh, more diverse. So it used to be that we'd be appealing just to those geeks and nerds within the, the, the marketing organization. But we're seeing that analytics is a great way to, to break down some of the barriers. And we're seeing just, just genuine conversations happening between the marketing folks and the CFO's office and R&D, talent management, and so on. So we're seeing a greater diversity of the questions that people are asking. We're also seeing just a, a greater sophistication of the skills that they have. So it used to be, um, you know, can we do this for them? And now it's, can we help them do it better on their own? Eric? I was going to say, I think, um, first of all, I like Pete's answer, but I think Pete's being extraordinarily modest here. And let me say why. I think both his book, Customer Centricity, and his research work on customer lifetime value has really been the part that has stuck the most, as I have found over time. I think um, customer lifetime value, which Pete 
spends, let's call it, half of his research time thinking about. It really is a unifying framework that unifies together people in marketing. You know, how do I spend to raise customer lifetime value? But the CFO gets it. You make money one customer at a time. You might have millions of them. And so fortunately, um, a lot, as Pete, even after he moved on from being a formal co-director of WCI, um, customer lifetime value, the work he's done in customer centricity, it's always our starting line Mm -hmm. anyway, because it's the thing that resonates the most with people in different job functions. You're listening to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. We're here today with Wharton marketing professors Peter Fader, Raghu Ayengar, and Eric Bradlow. We're talking a little bit about the 10th anniversary of the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative. And if you're listening in your car on your commute, I would invite you also to come on over to the Knowledge of Wharton website after the podcast where you can find links to some of the articles that the professors are mentioning during our interview. Um, so tell me a little bit, Raghu, about what would you say are some of the biggest misunderstandings that companies have about data, that they have about analytics even today? I think uh, many times when they start out, they I mean, I'll, I'll tell the story in two ways. One is that somehow just having a good model, having good analytics done, somehow will make it implementable. That's wrong. I think you have to have a complete bind. Everybody in the organization should understand what we're striving for. In that sense, building on Eric's point about, you know, Pete's work on customer centricity, everybody gets it. The CFO gets it, the CEO gets it, the CMO gets it. Once you have the top management with you, I think it becomes easier. So that's the implementation, the solution. The second thing is, in some sense, trying to understand, you know, if you start thinking about complexity, models can be complex, but you have to always start with the business problem. I think it's becoming increasingly easier for many of us when we have conversations with companies to start with their business problem. But that's something we've seen all along, which is many times they get so involved in the problem itself or the solution that they don't understand the problem. Now, Eric, what do you think is the most important thing? Because there's another group here that we haven't mentioned yet, which is the customers. What do you think is the most important thing for the customers to know about the collection of this data and how it's being analyzed? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the issues that we get asked about all the time, and both around privacy, security, et cetera. Um, It really depends on your perspective. I've never been clear from both from a researcher's point of view or even just, you know, a human being on the planet Earth, you know, if there's a right answer to this question. I can always speak for myself. Um, I'm thankful that customer analytics exists because I like better recommendations when I go to websites. I like targeted emails. I like targeted ads. Now, I understand the cost of that means my data is shared. And so I understand that. But again, I actually think it gives me the customer. I save time. I save money. And it actually broadens the types of things that I get exposed to. So from my point of view, but I understand from a societal point of view, and actually it reminds me of a story. Pete and I once gave a talk. Pete will remember this. We gave a talk at, I'm going to call it a legal studies and ethics conference. And we were both talking about separate streams of research that we were doing. Like what if regulation comes around and people only have more aggregated data? So companies actually can't have access to that individual level data. We've both done separate streams of research that said actually Companies don't lose as much as you would think. Now, from a legal scholar's point of view, they're like, wait a second, you're telling me companies don't – like the argument companies have is, well, if we don't keep the individual level data, we'll lose lots of profits. It turns out it's not obvious that that's true. It was probably the biggest standing ovation either of us ever received, and it wasn't even at a marketing conference. It was at a legal studies conference. And so this is a touchy issue for me. I like the fact that individualized data exists, and I'm even talking about myself as a person, but certainly as a scholar. Pete, you have something to add? 
indeed. That was a, a great moment. And it, it's nice that our research has been kind of independent of the flavor of the month. We're working on, on new methods and interesting problems, not just, oh, we got to say something about uh, limiting data and so on. And with that in mind, and just thinking about how this month the GDPR will go into effect in Europe, um, I worry a lot about that. I worry about the policymakers who are just, well, to overstate a little bit, kind of making things up, who probably haven't read our research, who don't really understand what kind of data is useful and intrusive and not. Uh, and I think there's a bit of an overreach going on there. I think there's concerns of some of that happening here in the U.S. I think that centers like WCAI are, are really helpful to to bring some some clarity instead of just just uh, kind of overreacting uh, to this kind of conversation. So that not only will executives but also policymakers attend and, and listen to the kinds of things that that these folks have to say in order to make uh, better decisions, not just with the customers but with the overall ecosystem around data as well. Pete, as you mentioned, I mean, in the past couple of months, there have been some heightened concerns about how some companies are using some data. Do you feel like, I mean, what kind of conversations need to take place either face-to-face or even virtually or via marketing between, say, the companies and the customers about, well, just like you said, Eric, like we have your data, but we are doing some good things with it and we're also doing some things to protect it. I think it's a, it's a great educational moment about what kinds of metrics really are predictive and what, what kinds of metrics are at most nice to know. I'll just speak for myself here, not speaking for the initiative, and saying that a lot of the, the data associated with the whole uh, Cambridge Analytica mess uh, was kind of useless. And it's, it's not clear to me that they made a lot of effective decisions using it. That doesn't mean it's, it's right just to put that out there in the wild. There were definitely uh, bad things were done. But I think we need to sort out the kinds of uh, policies and actions that companies have taken from the nature of the data and the analytics that can be performed with it. And that conversation has been all muddled. And again, here's a, a group of people who can bring some clarity to it. Yeah, the thing I was just going to add to what Pete said is one of the things, you know, if people go on YouTube, they can see my video on this. Actually, I also did a Knowledge at Wharton and uh, Knowledge at Wharton and a lifelong learning talk about this, what I call better data, not big data. So when I hear what Pete was saying, which I fully agree with, people assume, well, they're collecting all of this stuff. That just has to be bad. As Pete pointed out, which I agree with, most of it is not actually predictive of anything. Therefore, they're collecting in some sense a lot of big, useless data. And actually, one of the things I've been thinking about for a long time is what are the kinds of new data sources that companies will be able to collect that will actually be both valuable for the firm, but also possibly better for customers. And Riku, I'm going to, what do you, what do you think some of those so might I think be? these are great points. I think also from a customer's perspective, they have to also start thinking about what are the benefits that they're getting, tangible benefits. Uh, it could be like Eric just said, you know, customized emails, customized ads and so on and so forth, but also what are the costs? So it's very transparent to them how the data is being used. In some sense, is it being used as a collective? Is it being used with personalized information? How is it being used? What is it being used for? Who is the end user? Is this data being sold to other people? All of these are important conversations to have now, especially thinking about in the future, there might be less of this data. So how can we extract most information at the least cost to consumers? You're listening to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. We're here with Wharton marketing professors Eric Bradlow, Raghu Iyengar, and Pete Fader. And we're talking a little bit about the evolution of data and analytics, um, marking the 10th anniversary of the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative. Now, Raghu, to get a little bit onto some of the developing technologies that might make a diff- big difference here with the Internet of Things and connected appliances and households, it, companies are increasingly being able to collect data at or near the source. So yes. somebody makes a purchase, yep. right away they know things. Somebody yes. 
somebody gets something out, opens their fridge, right away we know about it. So what type of implications does this have for firms and also the end user? I think the one straight away, of course, is this issue of privacy in some sense. I mean, that's that's a given in the sense that if you are, quote unquote, in C2 and you're suddenly getting an email as soon as you leave a store, clearly there is a lot of implications from the point of view of privacy. But at the same time, I think there is this issue of benefit and cost. Some consumers may actually be okay with that because they understand that this data is being collected. In other words, there is heterogeneity. I think it's important for marketers to understand that not every customer is the same even things like personalized marketing may work for some people and may not work for others. So thinking carefully about new ways of collecting data, but also understanding that not all customers can be treated alike is very important. Mm-hmm. Now, Eric, the other, another thing that's going on right now is that the emergence of AI and machine learning is also meaning that sometimes the data and the analytics, they're creating they're being created for robots to assess. In addition, I mean, humans are never seeing them. So what does that mean for the development of the space? I think there are lots of different what I would call rote tasks that uh, computers, uh, artificial intelligence, machines and stuff can actually replace. uh, You know, in some sense, at the end of the day, we need things that are scalable and automated. That's true. But at the end of the day, also, there's still going to be an art to it. And so I don't believe I'm actually not one of those people that believe that all of the area of analytics is going to be replaced by artificial intelligence and computers making those decisions. Um, Because again, I think there's still domain area knowledge that won't be trivial. And in some sense, it has to do with, you know, if you want to get semi-technical for a second, there are always going to be interactions between the consumer and the context that you can't measure that easily and directly. You can't just measure it by a, if you'd like a statistical term, a four-way interaction between these variables or some complicated decision tree that's trying to model how the consumer's making a decision. But wouldn't it be great if in some sense, all the decisions that can be made in a large-scale automated way are made in that way? And that leaves us humans who have limited capacity actually spending time on those more subtle and difficult decisions. That's how I view it. Now, I have a question for all three of you, and we'll start with Pete, which is, what do you expect to be the major trends in customer analytics over the next decade? What's what's Wakai going to solve next? Well, let's again go back to our roots and say that the tagline uh, for the initiative uh, when Eric and I were setting up was the idea of people doing things over time. That if we can watch who's buying what or interacting with whom or with the website, you know, can we make statements about who's likely to do what next? But it was always about behavior. And still, to a large extent, it is. Uh, for I think I could say for all three of us, most of our research is about watching what people have done and projecting what, what they're going to do next. But the really cool stuff coming up is the stuff that isn't necessarily behavior, neuroscience. Uh, and when we were first setting up, it was kind of Star Wars far out there. This will never happen. But man, oh man, is it happening. And it's happening fast and it's happening well. And of course, it's happening right here at Wharton. So once we can really get inside people's heads and once we can really integrate uh, what people are seeing and thinking and planning, uh, it, it brings a whole new dimension to the kinds of data that we have and therefore the kinds of, of analytics that we'd want to use and the kinds of decisions that firms would make. Great. And Raghu, what do you think the next Great. big thing's going to be? I mean, just to complement what Pete said, I think two directions. One is, of course, when you think about broadening the scope of analytics, so one is neuroscience. Another potentially is even looking at culture within organizations, uh, which is, can you quantify that? So that's one other one. And the third one is not just about just the diversity of applications, but what can Wakai do for it? It is training the next generation of people to handle those kinds of problems. We think, you know, quote unquote, our tagline, learning by doing, we will have access to all these wonderful data that can help train the next generation of translators. 
And Eric? Well, so Pete did mention our tagline, people doing things over time, which stays, it stayed today. It's still our tagline. Um, I like to use a different quote, though, which is, if you think about the famous expression about marketing, what's marketing? It's living the right product to the right person at the right time. And I've always said, um, at least in the last 20, 30 years, we've been able to do two of those. We reflect heterogeneity. Got that. We can make product recommendations because of your purchase history, but the right time we were unable really to do. And so to me, the next 10 years, just my opinion, spatial data and people's geospatial position is going to be big. So whether that's where are you located in a a shopping mall, um, et cetera, in some sense, the same way that we track people online and people are retargeted based on where they are online, we're going to be able to do the same thing out in the physical world. So I think geospatial data, which imagine attaching that. Pete and I have done some work on in-store tracking. Imagine taking someone's physical location and appending it to their transaction history, now all of a sudden you have the ability to do targeted marketing, but based on where you currently physically are. And I think that's going to be a big part of the future. It's going to be amazing to see where we'll be 10 years from now when we're talking to you guys again. Thank you so much for being here today, Pete, Regu, and Eric. And you can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts and articles and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can find all of our podcasts on Apple's podcasting app and your other favorite podcasting apps. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really does help like-minded folks find the podcast. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.